Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel. I'm back. I missed the episode the other week. I'm pleased to be back, joined by Bruce Feldman. And Bruce, speaking of Trader Joe's, I know you have young ones in the house. My seven-year-old is obsessed right now with Trader Joe's fish sticks, which is great because in the past, we couldn't get her to eat anything but pasta and ice cream. So I'm happy that she's now eating Trader Joe's lightly breaded fish sticks, reduced fat, 35% 35% less fat than regular fish sticks. Yeah, our kids like them too. And similarly, like I, my son will eat very healthy. Our daughter, similar to yours, too much on the sweets, not enough on, on, on you know, basic protein stuff. So, um, and for the record, we do feed her fruits and vegetables too. I don't want to make anybody think I'm, it's a solely pasta and fish sticks diet. All right. Lots happened on Saturday. A lot of eventful results, a lot of upsets. Let's start with, this one wasn't an upset, but it was the big game. Ohio State beats Penn State 20-12. to 12. A little bit deceiving. It was 20-6 to 6 until the final 30 seconds, and you were there. Uh, impressions of those teams? Yeah, I'll be honest. I mean, it was, a, it was an excellent atmosphere. I was surprised. I was very underwhelmed by the Penn State offense. Um, was expecting more for, for Drew Aller. Was expecting more for their pass game. I honestly think the difference in the game, this is probably an overgeneralization, but I really think it came down to Ohio State has one truly great player in Marvin Harrison Jr. And Penn State has pretty good receivers, guys who can run. They don't have that. And if not for that was the difference in the game. I mean, if you watched, um, I just didn't think everything was hard for Drew Aller in Penn State. You know, I you know, it was not a great day for um, Penn State's offensive coordinator. I th- I just felt like they really, really struggled with everything, and it wasn't like Ohio State was 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 lighting up the field. I mean, it felt like the game was close all the way around, and then it was just Marvin Harrison Jr. made plays, and almost nobody else on offense didn't. I mean, I thought there was some really good things that you know you saw from the Penn State defense. That you saw a lot of really good things from the Ohio State defense, but ultimately, um, to me, it was like you know Penn State. I think at one point was zero for fourteen on third downs. I think they were one for sixteen on the day. A bunch of Drew Aller's yards came. I don't want to call it garbage time, but it was really after the game felt like it was decided. Now it felt like the game, you know, being on the field, you know, late in the third quarter, it felt like it was there for Penn State. They just never were able to really get anything going. And, you know, I, again, Drew Aller looked like a young quarterback. And honestly, it looked like to me from, you know, or from right out of the gates, do I'll be honest, just from watching it, I felt like they didn't look like they had full trust in him to be able to stand there and not make mistakes. And ultimately, 
I think that's the difference. You know, Mike Yersich, who's the quarterback coach and obviously the OC there, uh, he's done a good job but I, at, you know, at a lot of places. But I felt like here, I was just expecting Drew Aller to, to, to rise up and meet the moment. And some of that's on his receivers not being able to separate. A lot of that's credit to, to, to Jim Knowles' defense. And I do think Ohio State, this is the best defense they've had in, you know, in a while. And that's, you know, the past few years, it hasn't been very good. But, you know, I'm curious to see what happens when they play Michigan. This is, they're going to play a quarterback who's at another level from these guys, both the guys we saw yesterday. Yeah, uh, I Jim Knowles was a great hire at the time. What he did at Oklahoma State, which never had a good defense before, is amazing. Uh, one thing that stood out to me in this game is, and it is hard sometimes to say, well, is it that the defenses were so great or the offenses were bad? It's not that the offenses are bad. It's that we've become so accustomed to watching these amazing quarterbacks all over the, you know, especially in the Pac-12, but all over the country. And here we had two young quarterbacks or inexperienced quarterbacks who you're right. I don't think we're ready for the moment. And that's particularly frustrating if you're a Penn state fan, because they had such high expectations for this team. And a big part of it was, you know, three, four years of Sean Clifford and frustrations with him. Now you've got the five-star guy, Drew Aller. He's going to improve their passing game. And if anything, it's gone in the other direction. And one thing you saw or, or, you know, noticed over the first half of the season as Penn State was seemingly dominating their opponents is the lack of explosive plays and people, oh, it's going to change at some point. Well, now I think that's that's just what their offense is. It's very limited, uh, limited on playmakers. When I realized Drew Aller was in trouble was, you know, there are a lot of plays where they just got to him. Uh, Ohio State can pressure a quarterback. But there are a lot of plays where he had plenty of time to throw and still couldn't complete a pass to a receiver. So, um, you know, I think definitely disappointed in Penn State showing uh, makes, you know, Audrey Snyder, our Penn State writer, wrote a really good column, really strong column about James Franklin and his inability to, you know, he beats the teams he should, but he's he just really, really struggles in these big games. I mean, you saw the stack going around about his record against top 10 teams. It's not good. So now I turn my attention to Ohio State. If if nothing else, this is a very different Ohio State team than certainly since Ryan Day's been there, where they were, you know, they had first round quarterbacks and they threw the ball over all over the field, but the defense wasn't necessarily up to that level. And now I feel like it's flipped. The defense is elite. There is no question about it. The offense is one player, and credit to Marvin Harrison Jr. He is fantastic. I, I, uh, I want to disagree with you on that. The offense is not one player because Cade Stover is a really good tight end. I know, like, I, I was with some of the Penn State coaches the night before just to catch up a little bit. Cade Stover is, is if not for Brock Bowers, Cade Stover might be the best tight end in the country. He's a good all-around tight end. He's a problem for other teams. The other thing is, and I think this needs to be pointed out, um, they were missing a couple, of guys. especially Emeka Abuka. Emeka yeah. Abuka really tried to go like when we went into the game, you know, cause I was doing big noon stuff off the game as well. Um, Trevion Henderson, we were not expected to play. I mean, he, he you know, he really wasn't going to be a factor. We didn't think from everything we'd heard. Emeka Abuka was, was moving really well for somebody who was, who was, you know, healing up from a lower, lower leg injury. Um, 
on Friday. And then on Saturday, you know, the, they were optimistic he was going to try to go. And then you watched him, you know, uh, on a couple of his releases, he just looked kind of gimpy. It was almost like the ground looked unsteady for him. And so he was unable to play. I think he will play soon. And he's he's really good. So now as you're talking about, it's not like they don't have other good receivers like, like Xavier Johnson, Julian Fleming. Those guys are very, very gifted. But Emeka is a stud. You put him with 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 obviously Marmon, who's the who I would argue he might be the best player in college football. Caleb, Drake May, whoever else you want to say. I mean, he's better at what I feel like I may be misusing this this old baseball term, VORP, value over replacement player. But I feel like the gap between Marvin Harrison Jr. and the next three best receivers is bigger than it is when you're talking about Caleb or Drake May and the other quarterbacks. So you have that guy who is a truly elite player and impressive in every way. And then now you're talking about Emeka Buku, who's probably one of the four, one of the four best receivers, a high level tight end. That's why I'm not jumping on you too much, but I think it's, I don't think it's fair to say, and I don't think it's accurate to say they're, they're basically, you know, have that one guy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was one guy in this game. Uh, yeah, I mean, they averaged one. Yeah. So they averaged 1.9 yards per carry in the rushing game. Marvin Harrison, 11 catches for 162 yards. The next closest guy, he had 11 catches. The next closest was Stover with four catches, but four catches for 70 yards. Do you think, you know, you've been higher in Michigan than everyone, anyone, you national champion before the season. They haven't played a strong schedule, but they've been dominating teams. And one thing I want to say about that is, you know, I know eight games into the season I've done with, well, they haven't played anybody. We don't really know about them. Look at Washington struggling to beat ASU. Look at UNC losing to a one and five Virginia team. It's hard to win every single week. And Michigan has just dominated everybody they've played. Can Ohio State beat Michigan with this formula, which is now dominate on defense, make enough plays on offense, not CJ Stroud throwing for a ton of yards or Justin Fields before that? Yeah, I, I definitely think they can because, you know, especially if they have a Buka back, if Travion Henderson can get healthy and get right, then all of a sudden you have the guy who, like, they have two other really good running backs, but they're more, uh, you know, Chip Trainum is explosive in a way that Mayan Williams isn't necessarily, but Travion is slick outside and the stretch play is, a, you know, a potential home run hitter play with him there. So I, you know, yes, Ohio State is definitely talented to beat anybody. Um, but man, you know, the way to me that the difference, and we will see, you know, is JJ McCarthy going to do, and, and we got a month to get to this. Is he going to do, um, you know, he's gone to the next level. It seems like in his game, but he's going to have to do it again. Like, as you said, Ohio state has, has talent at all three levels. They have a very good defensive line. They have active linebackers who are really smart and they have good players in the secondary. Again, this is a much improved, um, you know, and they didn't have Denzel Burke yesterday, you know, Jordan Hancock's talented, you know, who's played some before and started before and he jumped in and looked good, looked very good. Um, so I think, yes, they can, yes, they certainly can beat them. But one of the, you know, I talked to a scout before the game in the field and it was just, you know, CJ Stroud was there physically there yesterday. And cause they had a bye week. And one of the things that had come up was just like, I don't think. 
people realized how good he was in college football. And I wanted to say, like, no, we a lot of us knew how good he was. Uh, I underappreciated him. I'll be the first to admit that. Really? He had a couple dud games, and it kind of clouded my perception of him. And also, I always found it difficult to separate him from all those great receivers. But clearly, I was wrong. And uh, But here's the thing. That, that brings me to Michigan has J.J. McCarthy, who's playing at such a high level, probably going to be a first-round quarterback. When is the last time you went into a Michigan-Ohio State game where Michigan had the advantage of quarterback? The only one I could think of, and I, this is probably wrong for me to think it, but I just remember he was such a playmaker, and the rest of the field was so tilted the other way. And again, I, I have to look at this before I even probably let it come out of my mouth. But like Denard Robinson was a truly, you know, special talent. He wasn't a great passer. He was just like a phenomenon with the ball in his hands, right? Um, but you stumbled of- onto the answer. I would say it was 2011, Denard Robinson against true freshman Braxton Miller on that, I believe, six and seven Ohio State team. So a dozen years ago. And that to me is going to be the big challenge for Ohio State. As great a defense as you have, in this sport, in this day, an elite quarterback can make a huge difference. It certainly did for Ohio State in that near win against Georgia in the semifinal. But um, that's still uh, still a little bit ways away. And hopefully for Ohio State's sake, they get back uh, the, the injured guys and are at full strength when they go into that game. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, speaking of Michigan, we have not had a chance yet to address the big news from late last week that Michigan is under investigation by the NCAA uh, for, it starts, I mean, basically sign stealing, but sign stealing on its own is not against the rules. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Tell us. It's an investigation into signal stealing, but not the usual gamesmanship that will happen in game where look i think it was the first story i ever did for the athletic was on secrets of a s- signal stealer and it goes on you know almost a hundred percent in college football but that's the end game stuff now you know i talked to a ton of people thursday and friday to see where this story was going because what is alleged uh here and what the ncaa when they notified not just michigan but the but the big 10 about this was that it was so elaborate that it was something that was going on as advanced scouting, right? And what whether they were using technology to do it, whether it was in person, this has happened 
a handful of times we know about before to some degree. Um, but in this case, the the person in question who is at the, you know, I don't want to say Jim, Jim Harbaugh is certainly in question here too, but the person who on staff who has already been suspended, Connor Stallions, he was an analyst who was a Naval Academy grad who had, who had also um, been in the Marine Corps. And his reputation, I know from talking to people close to the Michigan program around the Michigan program, has been that he has a very uncanny knack for decoding opposing signals. And well, when, now we might know why. <laughs> well, yes and no, Stu. I think, I think it can be that way without necessarily saying, okay, he was doing this for, um, you know, there was video that he may have been studying up on beforehand. So he knew we don't know necessarily that at this point, it certainly looks very, very suspicious now. And the people I talked to pointed out, it seems to be an unusual step for the NCAA to have, to be so public with this information, which leads a lot of people, especially in coaching to conclude they may have strong evidence, whether it was from receipts from from ticket receipts to surveillance things where they they've seen either people on Michigan staff who were either at games or had some kind of photographic or digital footprint that was left behind. And we'll have to see how this plays out um, going forward. The thing I wonder about, normally these things take forever for the NCAA to sort out. Remember, they just like hit Bill Self in Kansas like six, six years, years. happened. Yeah. Uh, Jim Harbaugh is already in hot water with the NCA from allegations into violations during the COVID dead period. You know, remember he served three games that they self-sanctioned. That's not what the NCA is probably going to come down with. My hunch is that Jim Harbaugh, who has danced with the the NFL and some job opportunities, the last two winners, I think. This is probably the scenario that it may be in the back of his head. This everybody came back for this this great run. We're going to dominate the Big Ten. We're going to win the national title, and then I'm going to go back to the NFL and make a run at a Super Bowl and f the NCAA, and they'll deal with it after the fact. Quite possibly. Um, so, a lot of outlets, a lot of mainstream outlets, have reported various nuggets of this story and. The one I know that that um, the athletic had right from the beginning is that the investigation centers around Michigan is accused of using a quote vast network to steal opposing team signs. So to your point, like I don't think this rise, rises to the NCA's level. If somebody somewhere, whether it's an opposing team, um, I mean, it does sound like everybody in the Big Ten knew they were up to something. So it wouldn't be surprising if somebody one of the teams turned them in that there must be some, at least some evidence already that this went beyond normal sign stealing. Now, could that be, you know, uh, the, the, the smoking gun would be if like, I know it said they're going to, they asked for his computer. If there's video on there of some, that that of somebody um, that a video of, of another upcoming team that was clearly taken from the stands um, and that they could then match up with the all 22, um, so I wrote a column on Friday, just throwing this out there. I don't think it's going to happen, 
But like you said, the NCAA, you know, that we'll probably find out in June of next year what what exactly they found. But this what's so unusual about this is usually these NCAA investigations have to do with something that happened years ago, or at least the previous year. In in calling around to various people who are familiar with these sorts of cases, or just NCA cases in general, nobody could think of an example of something like this that came up in the middle of the season that we're, that's in progress. I think we could agree that if this turns out to be what, what the reports are saying it could be, Michigan was very intentionally trying to gain a competitive advantage over their opponents in 2023. And the whole reason there's a rule book is that to try to ensure a, a level playing field. I would argue that a lot of the stuff they investigate, like a guy took money to sign autographs, uh, this would be pre-NIL, you know, does that has no impact on the competitive advantage of a game. This absolutely did. So is there any, you know, I don't think the NCAA could do this, but the Big Ten has a lot of latitude to punish players, coaches, teams for sportsmanship violations. They do that when there's a fight in a game. They do that when uh, a coach criticizes the officials. Of course, the difference is that's on tape and they have that immediately. This is something that might take a while to piece together. But like, I don't know, if this were a Little League game, this is a Little League World Series and you find out about Danny Almonte, um, you could argue that those games they played early in the season, they should have to forfeit. They were, you know, they were breaking the rules. I don't think anybody's going to actually do that. The allegations are that they were trying to manipulate the results of the games, basically. Uh, I compared it to, a, you know, getting caught cheating in golf. So that team, you know, if they make the Big Ten championship, if they win the Big Ten championship, if you're the other teams in the Big Ten, you could say, well, that wasn't fair. You know, they get to go play for the championship and they were breaking the rules. So... I just don't think it's all going to get resolved in six weeks You know, by the time they would play in the Big Ten Championship. So probably any punishments that result from this will happen well after the fact. They might win a national championship and then have it vacated uh, years later or something. I don't know. But it is unusual for this to be. I mean, this Michigan season it starts with Harbaugh being suspended. Now we've got this. It's like they're on a path to a possible national championship. And there's just so many off the field subplots now. Yeah, it, it's it is interesting um, to see where this is where this is going. As you as you said, um, you know, since, since thing- enough has leaked already, I think if there's evidence out there, videos, pictures, I think it's going to leak pretty soon. Well, what I was going to say is all these opponents. You're sitting there thinking. Because I, I talked to one of the coaches who played them. It's a, uh, one of the Big Ten teams. And he was like, we didn't actually think anything of it because it was like they were just a way better than us. They were more physical. They didn't do anything that was like made of me think, oh, man, they're on to our stuff. There was anything like, you know, how how things lined up. But last year and our friend Chris Vanini pointed this out. I didn't even remember this. Like going into the Big Ten, the, going into the Ohio State Michigan game, I did one of those stories where I talked to a lot of coaches about both teams. And one of the coaches I talked to was a running back in the running back coach in the league said, Michigan got our signals early and they were on our stuff on both sides of the ball. 
And that is not, look, that is not uncommon. I remember talking to uh, somebody else at a different school talking about how a certain team was like, we had a great defense and we got no pressure on their quarterback. They slid the right way every time they, you know, had all the adjustments. And as, you know, as, you know, I mentioned earlier in the, in the, you know, in this segment, that is not uncommon for, for teams to be really good at this, you know? Yeah. I, I, one thing that came up, which was like kind of when this story popped up and I'm not saying this is necessarily going to prove to be the same thing, but one of the games I did as a sideline reporter actually had, uh, you know, you know, this issue in that Jeff Levy was a Baylor assistant and he showed up at a Oklahoma Tulsa game we were doing. And he had gone to OU as a student. And I think he said that, you know, his fa- he and his family were there in town for like a wedding. That was, And I think he got suspended maybe for a half a game or maybe a game because obviously that was, you know, within the league. But that was an example of it where you can't be, you know, you can't just show up at another team's games. Now, I one of the coaches I talked to um, in the Big Ten, this is a head coach, had told me, they don't even do a lot of signaling during spring games because he said he's leery of who is showing up and who is seeing what they're doing. Well, look, like you said, right, basically the distinction, the only reason this would be an NCAA case, it's the distinction between gamesmanship and... In-game, in-game. In-game gamesmanship and I guess the way I would put it is... Yeah, advanced scouting. It's, um, well, we'll see how it unfolds. We... Right now, we just have a bunch of anonymous reports of what they may have. I would think in the next couple of weeks, we might find out exactly what they do have. All right, Bruce, we've been talking them up all season. Let's talk them up again. Graduate Hotels, the great game day go-to that has hotels in college towns all over the country. Great locations, great bars. Feel the excitement of your college town on game day. They'll make sure your stay is action-packed with extras like live music, pregame refreshments, next morning helpers if you had a big night. If you love college football, you're going to want to see the lamps shaped like school mascots. They've got rooftop bars. I, last week, sung the praises of the Graduate Hotel in Seattle, which could not have been more convenient to covering a game at Husky Stadium. So here's what you do. Start planning your football weekend now and get up to 20% off your stay plus $50 for food and drinks with promo code GRADFB. That's G-R-A-D-F-B. Book now at graduatehotels.com. Back to the some of the eventful storylines of Saturday. So I feel like USC has become a weekly topic of discussion here. Um, they go down for the second time this season and the third time in two years to Utah. And what stands out to me about Utah is their offense was dead in the water a few weeks ago. Uh, they beat UCLA, but it was 14 to seven. Then they scored seven points in their loss at Oregon state. And now they're out there, not just cause it's USC's defense that cause they did this the week before too. Now they've suddenly got a really powerful offense. Thanks to a couple shrewd decisions by Kyle Whittingham in terms of his offensive personnel. Yeah. Sione Vaki is a guy who was on our freaks list this past summer, and he should have been higher on there for me because he went off the week before. He's a safety who's a good safety, who's a super explosive young athlete. He's a sophomore. 
and really good player. And when I talked to Cam Rising this summer, he was like, yeah, when I first saw him, I was like, man, that guy looks like Hercules, you know? And so they moved him to running back. They, you know, they, they had him also play running back because he's still playing defense. And he went off the week before. Yesterday, USC could not cover him. Nope. His ability to accelerate his change of direction is truly elite. And you're watching this going, holy cow. Like, because Utah's had really good running backs. Like, he's going to be fun to watch to see what they can do with. I mean, I think at one point he had like four catches for like 140 yards and two touchdowns. He had probably 200 yards of offense in addition to what he was doing on defense. I mean, I don't want to say, you know, Zachariah Branch did Zachariah Branch stuff in the course of that game too for USC, especially the amazing run where he actually ended up leaving too much time on the clock for the Utes at the end of the game. Mm -hmm. Um, But Man, Sione Vaki, more people didn't even be talking about that dude. Oh, I mean, he he was the difference maker in that game. Five catches for 149 yards and two touchdowns, nine carries for 68 yards. You know, at the start of the season, Travis Hunter was the ultimate two-way player. Uh, he got hurt, and then he had about the worst game I've seen a cornerback have this season, or worst half against Stanford. I mean, the two-way guy now is Vaki, and... I mean, yes, USC's defense is USC's defense, but this game was um, not necessarily a shootout. Utah was up 28-17 in the fourth quarter. Then USC comes back and goes up 32-31. Like you said, left a little too much time on the clock. And the other thing is, I mean, another characteristic of USC under Lincoln-Riley, you know, penalties, bad mistakes. Two killers two crushing penalties i mean i don't i feel like if he does not get the targeting the second one i don't know if they lose that game yeah i mean that bailed out utah uh and then we haven't even mentioned bryson barnes the pig farmer remember the guy who came in in the rose bowl against uh ohio state a couple years ago walk on at the time uh he's the starting quarterback again and he ran 26 yards to set up the game-winning field goal. So Utah is roaring back into the Pac-12 title race. They have a huge game at home this week against Oregon, which basically, you know, you've got two teams that are three, six and one, three and one in the league. I don't want to say the loser is out of the Pac-12 title game, but they're going to be, you know, they're going to need a lot of help. So big, big game there. In terms of USC, can I ask you this question? Yeah, this is a this was a um, something that you know, got my attention, got a few other people's attention um, Sunday morning as we're leading into us taping this. And this was something I noticed from um, Shotgun Spratling, who has been on the USC beat for a while and he works for for uh, 247 and USC For the first time in 14 years, I've been covering USC. The school did not make any players available to speak with the media postgame. Um, inside Troy, that's Ryan Abraham, full disclosure, Ryan Abraham is one of my longtime buddies who runs that site. Since friend the of the podcast, friend of the program. Yeah. And his first time in his 20 plus years that he's been around USC, that no players were made available to speak. I'm sure if Jason Kersey is listening to this podcast, our former OU beat writer turned law student, um, that law school student that they, that he would probably be nodding along I, when I want to ask you this, and I don't think it's necessarily a direct correlation but when coaches and this is something that's come up with lincoln when they get so 
don't know if it's micromanaging, but so tight with this stuff, it feels like it definitely blurs over to how the team plays. Wrong, do you think? I mean, I'm probably asking. The no, wrong, you're right. I mean, I realize that most of the time when there's a, something about um, cutting off access or lack, people are like, oh, sorry, you know, see what's so bad for you guys in the media. And they're, you know, coach can do what he wants. But how do, how do I, you can put this in context too, but like USC, for as long as I've been covering the sport, was actually the most open, the most one of the most open program. Program. Yeah. Yeah. Tim Teslone, you know, there who retired as SID right as Lincoln Riley was coming on, you know, made sure of that. And it's L.A. It's the second biggest media market. They treat USC like an NFL team. Um, there is an expectation there that you don't necessarily have at Alabama or any number of these powerful programs that are in smaller towns. I mean, Bill Plaschke ripped him in a column earlier this season when they uh, tried to ban one of the reporters from practice. Uh, the way I would, ju- what I would just say is, you know, when Lincoln Riley got hired, when they held that press conference at the stadium, he, it couldn't, he couldn't have been, you know, more celebrated. And I feel like uh, a season and a half in he's, he's the honeymoon is over. Uh, the USC fans are frustrated. It seems like they've taken a step backward this season Forget about the defense for a second. I mean, the offense has something's gone wrong there over the last few weeks. Caleb Williams is not being Superman Caleb Williams. And so stuff like this, to your point, just like aggravates people even more. Just just adds to the perception that things are going haywire there. So, uh, yes, I thought that was a, a poor move on his part, but in keeping with some stuff he did at Oklahoma. Um now they've got two losses, although one of the only one in conference. And man, look at who they still have left on the schedule. They still have Washington and Oregon, UCLA at the end of the season. UCLA made a quarterback change last night, uh, brought back uh, Ethan Garbers, and uh, you know obviously handled Stanford. There's a scenario. I mean, it's not out of the picture at this point that USC goes eight and four, and that would be a huge disappointment given they were the preseason. Pac-12 champion pick and obviously a lot of people's pick to go to the playoff. Yeah. And again, I think the problems, you know, and I wrote about this in our, um, in our newsletter at the athletic on Friday and some of the problems that USC have, the defense has been the headliner, but it's like, you look at the offensive line. Um, it's just, it's been a big problem. It's a big problem. And I think it bleeds into you know, we, you know, it's a, I think I mentioned this the other day where the NFL scout I talked to said it's like Caleb's trying to hit a five run home run every play. And I feel like he does some, he does a lot of spectacular stuff, but it's just like there isn't a flow to what they do because it just feels like, um, you know, it feels like they're constantly trying to drink out of the fire hose, you know, and um, I don't. You know, I don't know if we got too far ahead of the expectations on what how Lincoln Riley takes it from four and eight to last year. They were a top 15 team and they were they were explosive and everything to see. And you have a Heisman Trophy winner. And I don't know. It, it's it's interesting because I, I definitely think there's a lot of stuff that I, I think at some point Lincoln's going to have to sit down and and uh, and I'm not saying he doesn't do this already but evaluate almost everything. And I know coaches say they do that, but this is different in terms of, you know, when he got the job at Oklahoma 
You know, he certainly, you know, was a great hire for Bob Stoops on the offensive side of the ball, and he takes over for Bob. And similar to Ryan Day, he keeps a lot of the best parts of what was already there. But it's not like you're taking over a program that is in disarray like most head coaches take over. And so, you know, I, it's just like I because I, I, I could see them at best probably be a nine and three. I mean, this team certainly could lose. I think that would be an upset at this point because that would mean they beat one of Washington or Oregon. Which I think they will. I actually think they will do. Look, Washington was very fortunate to beat a really bad Arizona State team. They're losing most of the game. And then there's a pick six that they get late in the game. I mean. Yeah, that was the weirdest. Maybe the second weirdest. No, I'll say that was the weirdest result of the day. Although I'm, I'm willing to say to chalk it up to, you know, big emotional win the week before and. You're playing a team you expect to beat and you come out flat. If it happens again, then I'll be worried about Washington. But it felt more of like a, just you didn't bring your A game or even your B game. But you could be right. You could. I mean, USC, if if they flip the switch on offense, they can certainly beat those teams. But it would surprise me at this point. The reason I was debating whether I say weirdest or second weirdest is there was a huge upset in the ACC. One in five Virginia which really seemed to have nothing going for it under Tony Elliott, knocks off number 10, undefeated, UNC. Their defense really contained Drake May, um, kept his, except for Tez Walker, kept his receivers in check, slowed down the running game. UNC had two chances at the end to drive for the win. In fact, Virginia almost blew it and fumbled out of the end zone on their way to a touchdown. But they pull it off, a huge win for Tony Elliott and what he's trying to get going there to, to beat them. And on the UNC side, Bruce, why does Mac Brown's teams always lay an egg like that? They they lost last year. They were 9-1 and one and lost to a 4-6 and six Georgia Tech team. I remember a couple of years ago they lost to a, at the time, really bad Florida State team. It just seems like, and I had literally just jumped on the bandwagon last week and said, okay, I think these guys are for real. And then that happens. I don't know. Look, as you, I think you said it, you know, 15 minutes ago, it is really hard to keep winning in college football, especially week in and week out. You're dealing with 18, 19, 20 year olds. And that to me was reflective in Washington. And that was a home game, by the way, obviously. And for them, so was UNC. That's the strangest thing. They, Um, you expect that to happen on the road, not at home. Yeah. Look, I mean, they were coming off a a pretty big win over Miami and, and people were starting to feel them. And I think ultimately that, you know, look, um, hats off to Tony Elliott. It has been a rough first year and a half. And that was a huge win for his program. And again, that's why we love college football. Um, I w- would ask you this. So Clemson, I watched some of the Miami Clemson game. Miami was reeling. They were without Tyler Van Dyke. Emory Williams gets his first start. It's a Miami program that was reeling also from the last couple of weeks. They had lost to North Carolina. They had a horrible loss, late second loss against Georgia Tech. And then they end up knocking off Clemson, right? Um, Double overtime. Double overtime. You know, they found a way to kind of gut it out here. And they they beat Clemson. Dabo is sitting now there four and three. He looked kind of crestfallen is the right way to say it after the game, you know, wraps. Um, You and I have both talked about feeling like, you know what? Yes, he's done an amazing job there. He won two national titles, but we don't think he's going to win another. 
it definitely feels like this program is backsliding. Um, like their offense hasn't been that good. And they still have good, you know, a handful of good players, certainly. I mean, where do you see this program going right now? I think they're, they are what they are. They're a middle of the pack ACC team. They wow. have three ACC losses already, first time since 2010. And to your point, Dabo, who's usually all upbeat, nothing to see here, nothing to be worried about, um, kind of changes tune after this game. Um, he said, uh, for us, we're four and three, which is exactly what we deserve. I feel like I'm reliving 2010 all over again. It's like every game. It's crazy. Two overtime losses, obviously the game at Duke, where he four trips inside the 10-yard line and got no points. So obviously very frustrating. I don't understand why things happen sometimes, but I do understand we just got to keep moving. Um, later, he somebody followed up about the 2010 thing, and he just said, we're not very good right now. So, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think this is any longer about well they, they they you know they they need just need a couple transfers and they'll be back and no I think they have really backslid and the way that game ended was kind of illustrative of it right Clemson Miami scores first in overtime in the second overtime gets the two point conversion Clemson gets down to the half yard line needing on fourth down just need to get it into the end zone and in a weird play. Um, Cade Klubnick, Cade Klubnick supposed to hand off. Dabo confirmed that after the game of Miami, just destroy, comes right through the line of scrimmage. So, so Klubnick pulls it and tries to run it in himself and gets like stuff for a seven yard loss. Yeah. So that's what Clemson is now, you know, two years ago, four years ago, they would be able to get that. No problem. But stuffed at the half inch line, uh, you know, two and three in the ACC. I mean, I thought. The bigger thing is that Miami he had been reeling, and they and they got a big win with their backup quarterback, and they probably have a better chance at this point to make some noise in the ACC than Clemson. Clemson's just done. You know what's interesting here? Like looking at Clemson, and again, their last five games um, at NC State. NC State is one and two in the league, but they're pretty good on defense. Then they have Notre Dame, which I think you know will be a tough game. Notre Dame's got to come in there. They have Georgia Tech, who lost yesterday to BC, so they're now under 500. The aforementioned North Carolina Tar Heels. And then at South Carolina, and South Carolina has had a terrible season. They got shelled yesterday by Mizzou. Shane Beamer's team is 2-5 and five right now. But it's not a stretch to think that Clemson could lose five games this in the regular season, can go 7-5. and five. Going back to that law, remember they got drubbed by Notre Dame uh, early November last year? Since that game, they are seven and six. So it is what it is. Um, he's going to have to make some, just like you said, Lincoln Riley's got to evaluate his program after the season. I mean, he's still in better shape than Dabo. Dabo is going to have to reevaluate his program. He's not going anywhere. Um, can he get them back to being well, a I, contender in the ACC and, and reaching the playoff? Right now, they seem um, kind of far from that. I think the thing that Lincoln Riley will have and probably will always have, which is something I don't know if Dabo will, even though Dabo has a resume for this, is Lincoln Riley's coached, you know, a bunch of Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks and also another guy who played for a Super Bowl who almost won a Heisman, Jalen Hurts. And he's hands-on directly responsible for that. They know Lincoln is that guy when it comes to that. Dabo Sweeney's offense last year was eighth in the, in the ACC and this year it's ninth. 
And, you know, for a lot of people, DJ Uangalele was kind of the fall guy for that. And he's doing just fine on the other side of the country. And Clemson is still sputtering offensively. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty telling. So that that tells you it's not just the personnel. I mean, look, the guy coached Deshaun Watson. He coached Trevor Lawrence. It's not like Coach Taj Boyd. Taj Boyd was Taj Boyd. Like they have a history there of really good quarterbacks and really good offenses. I think the skill, the talent level, especially at receiver, is is down. Um, Kate Klopnik was uh, as highly regarded a QB in his class as anyone as any. So the fact that he's struggling so much, I think. Look, you you did the sit down with DJ in the spring where he kind of threw Clemson under the bus and said their their offense, the system is outdated. And clearly it is. I think a lot of people thought bringing Garrett Riley from TCU would fix that. Um, and it really it hasn't been the case. It was a movie made, but... Yeah, it really yeah. hasn't been the case. So um, there's more going on. Uh, there's a lot going on there, I guess is what I would say. It, to, to, to try to get that thing back um, is going to take a little bit of work. By the way, it's also in the ACC, Florida State Duke. I thought Duke fought well in that game for at least a half or a little over a half, but um, they lost Riley Leonard, and then they just they couldn't do anything on offense, and Florida State could. Jordan Travis, really good game. So I am starting to feel like Florida State is a, a notch above anyone else in the ACC. Obviously, they could have their own uh UNC losing to Virginia moment. They almost did earlier in the season against BC. But if you're looking around saying which teams are kind of um, would I pencil into the playoff at this point, I think Florida State would be one of them. I think they're going to win the ACC. They might be undefeated. At worst, they'd be 12-1. and one, And they have that win over LSU in their back pocket. LSU is not necessarily dominant like we thought they would be, but they're probably going to end up with a pretty good record. So, in fact, they – they could win the SEC West, right? They they play Alabama in a couple weeks. They both have one loss. So does Ole Miss. That's still very much on the table. Alabama keeps winning. They just keep winning, even though <laughs> every week I feel like, you know, at least at the start of the game, you're like, oh, man, they're in trouble. Uh, but they came roaring back against Tennessee. They get an off week, too. That LSU game, Alabama game will be interesting. It will. I mean, can you slow Jaden Daniels down? I mean... I don't know. I haven't turned in our little Heisman top three for the athletic for our straw poll. I'm very tempted to put a guy who's, a, you know, the leader of a two loss team, number one, because I just think he's been that good, that great. Yeah. Just like I feel like we talk about USC on this podcast every week lately. We've been talking about Iowa a lot, but it's I can't I can't look away. Um, they lose to Minnesota 12 to 10. They in the second half, if you add up all their drives, two yards. Two total yards in the second half, and yet they almost won. Maybe they should have won. Cooper DeGene, their great return man, breaks a punt return for a touchdown. And it looks like, you know, in that game, that would have been enough probably to win. And then it gets called off. In a controversial call, the refs decided that he had made a invalid fair catch signal. You don't see that very often. But basically, he was trying to wave off the other guys because the, the ball was bouncing but in doing so, he kind of like he was pointing with his right hand, but he was kind of waving his left hand. And the, and the official said he basically raised it too far. And that became a a fair catch signal, but an invalid fair catch. So they balls dead. You take over there and 
Iowa was not going to move the ball in position. In fact, they threw an interception a couple of plays. Iowa fans were furious. It's a controversial call. But the official, it was actually our Scott Docterman who interviewed the official afterward who said, who explained it and said um, that it was, the rules were applied correctly. So, one other, one other um, uh, officiating question that like, you know, again, I'm watching it on a plane with one of my coworkers um, and the Houston, Texas game. Mm, yeah. Like Dana Holgerson, man, I felt like Houston got hosed on a spot. They, I don't, you know, I don't like they're going to review it. They're going to overturn this. They never did. Houston loses. Um, you know, they there's shot after shot of Dana looking exasperated, throwing his hands up. And you, you know, it seemed like he had good reason to be pissed off. He did. Uh, I don't know if they would have won, but actually, the story from that game that we should mention is Quinn Ewers, who got hit hard, initially tried to stay in the game, but eventually came out. And when he came back, on the sideline, his arm was in a sling. All Steve Sarkeesian said afterwards, he injured his shoulder. He didn't give any indication of how serious it is. But I think we can agree that that would throw a huge wrench in Texas's season and in the Big 12 and in the race to reach the Big 12 title game if he's out for any sort of extended time. I know they like Malik Murphy, his backup, but I did notice that he only attempted two passes once he came in. Yeah, I, I you know, look, I think without yours. I think they can um, get get to the Big Twelve title. It's possible they could they could beat Oklahoma without yours. Without yours, um, but it's going to be a lot harder, right? Malik Murphy just hasn't played a lot. He didn't play that much in high school just because he was, you know, one of the quarterbacks who's you know part of his career got derailed by you know the COVID uh, issues. He's a big, smart, you know, strong arm guy. And he's got obviously good skill talent, a good offensive line around him. But if he has to be the guy that's learning on the fly in the middle of it, now fortunately for them, they would have at least some games to him get acclimated. But like, it's not the ones you want. I mean, BYU's actually played well. They're five and two, and then after that, you got K State, who's as you know really well coached, and they're sitting there at at five and two, you know. And so they would they would play some good defenses coming up. I mean, I think they could have trouble getting in the Big 12 title game. If if Ewers is out for, like, let's say the rest of the regular season, it could be he's out for a week. I don't know. But a couple of Big 12 teams that we left for dead early in the season have resurrected themselves. Kansas State whooped TCU 41-3. to And Chris Kleiman is now using a 2QB system, a little Steve Spurrier-esque, against TCU. Each quarterback, Will Howard and, and the freshman, Avery Johnson, who— ran for five touchdowns last week, um, rotated every other drive. Will Howard would lead one drive. He threw for three touchdowns. He'd go out, Avery Johnson would come in, and then they would do it again. And that's a weird system, but it worked. And it's really revitalized their offense. And then Oklahoma State, which seemed in dire shape early in the season when they lost at home to South Alabama, is now 5-2 and two overall, 3-1 and one in the conference. And the savior there is Ollie Gordon the second. You know, you had some great running backs come through uh, Oklahoma State for sure when you think about them. 29 carries, 282 yards, and four touchdowns as they beat West Virginia 48-34 to in Morgantown. I mean, you've got to consider them a factor now. Yeah, I have no doubt. I mean, he was a big recruit for them but a couple of years ago. But, man, he is... 
just exploded, especially in the last few weeks. I mean, this was a guy who had seven carries in the first week, nine in the second. And then all of a sudden, these are the last. So against Iowa State, who has the best defense, by the way, in the Big 12, he ran for 121 yards and averaged almost seven yards a carry. That was a loss. Then the next week, K-State, also really well coached you know, team, 136 yards. Then Kansas, 168 yards. And then obviously this game at West Virginia, 282 yards rushing, four yard, four touchdowns. Um, people need to be uh, paying attention a little more to Ollie Gordon, number zero. Oh, yeah. I, I don't, I guess Mike Gundy didn't realize what he had yet. Uh, I go back to that 33 7 loss to South Alabama. First of all, that's when he was still playing three quarterbacks. Uh, now he has finally settled on Alan Bowman. And in that game, Ollie Gordon had three carries. So, from that to where he is now running for 280-something yards at West Virginia has turned that team around. Should we do some shout-outs? Let's get to it. So Scott Docterman and I took a lot of heat from Rutgers fans when we wrote a story before the season as part of our realignment series about how Big Ten, you know, just all the, the disastrous first decade of Rutgers in the Big Ten. Well, Rutgers is going bowling for the first time. I can't say they're going bowling for the first time since 2014 because there was that weird year where they got to go to the Gator Bowl as a replacement for a team that I don't even remember which team it was that uh, had to bow out for COVID. But uh, six wins for the first time since 2014 already at this point in the season. Greg Schiano still got it. They, they brought him back for a reason. Do you remember there was some it wasn't even certain that he would come back. They were like negotiating and then. But then it came out that, that they just couldn't agree to a terms and they weren't going to get him. But it was seen as so important to get him that they went back to the negotiating table. He came on and at least early on is starting to do what he did the first time around. That program was so bad under Chris Ash. And it's just been a gradual climb over the last three years. And and now you're seeing it pay off. Uh, they, they are six and two. They have a very tough last four games so i don't know how much better the record will get but this is still a big deal to reach six and two yeah i know tennessee fans snicker every time his name comes up but like as bad as that program was before shiano got there this time it was way worse before that I, living in the in new york city when he came from miami as the defensive coordinator to take over that program they were horrible i think richrod put up 82 on them or 83 on them the first season um, I still remember hearing, uh, they got to play in the Arizona bowl, whatever it was called. It wasn't the festival and Brent Musburger calling a Rutgers game. I was like, Oh my God, this is insane for me to think that, you know, such a level of acceptance that, wow, Brent Musburger's calling a Rutgers game. It was and the insight bowl. Maybe I believe it was called that. It was the bowl that got Glenn Mason fired a few years after that. Yeah. But, um, guy, guys, good coach he knows what he's doing he's super smart and um i don't know how much further they can take it i mean you know new jersey has a lot of talent there it's just keeping it in state and you know greg's started to do that though so we'll see my shout out you kind of in inadvertently tripped over it a little bit was also an oklahoma state guy but is the aforementioned alan bowman um, very happy for Alan Bowman. Alan Bowman's career is star-crossed to say the least. Starts out as a freshman in that same Big 12 and puts up huge numbers and actually leads the Texas Tech Red Raiders to a big win that they hadn't had in Stillwater, no less. 
But then, you know, punctured lung, another punctured lung, has all sorts of injuries, relocates to Michigan, and thought he would be able to just go in there and win the job, even though he got there after he graduated. Um, after spring football, he just, you know, he waited to, to finish up his classes, was not ready to compete for the job because Jim Harbaugh does a lot of pro-style stuff. And Al- Alan said he didn't understand the footwork, any of it. It took a long time to go. I was like, why didn't you transfer like a, after a year of this when you know you can't win the job? And he said, because I was in the business school and it was going to get like the best, what was this, like supply side um uh, business degree in the world. So why am I going to give that up? Didn't took us, took a chance on himself at Oklahoma state. And it took a while. Like you said, it was a three quarterback system and he struggled and they struggled early on, but the last two weeks he's settled in. He threw for 336 yards last week and a couple of touchdowns this week again, played well, obviously Ollie Gordon is supporting it. But I think he's going to keep getting better and better. And again, if anybody's ever spent any time around Alan Bowman, he's definitely somebody you root for. So shout out to Alan Bowman. I also, can I add a couple more? Of course. A couple um, couple teams that have really, really struggled got big wins. New Mexico had a national worst 20-game conference losing streak in the Mountain West, Bruce. They snapped that with a blowout win at Hawaii on Saturday. Kudos to them. And then Nevada which had lost 10 uh, conference games in a row, beats San Diego State by a score of 6 to nothing. I don't know what's going on with Brady Hoke and San Diego State, but, man, this is not the San Diego State of uh, Rocky Long days. They are, they are in trouble, and they lose 6 nothing to a Nevada team that, like I said, hadn't won a Mountain West game in a long time. So uh, kudos to those guys. All right. Uh, we didn't get a chance to do the mailbag last week because I did not want to, uh, I didn't want to, our, our friend, Kevin Clark, who joined us, didn't want to throw him in the mix of answering for Stu, but Stu can answer for Stu better than anybody. So we will have, send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com and we'll see you on Wednesday. How did we get away with the things we used to do?